More than 150 people came to St Melitus College in London this week for a Moral May-style panel event discussing the parish Has It Had Its Day? It was hosted by the Church Times and SCM Press, and it turned out to be a lively discussion. For this episode of the Church Times podcast, we're posting a recording of the entire evening. And don't forget, if you don't already subscribe to the Church Times, for just £5 you can try five issues of our print and digital editions. Go to churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. Good evening and welcome to this event on the future of the parish system, which is sponsored by the Church Times and SCM Press. It's an absolute delight to see so many of you here tonight in St Melitus. So tonight we're going to have a wonderful, wonderful discussion. There are some really big questions facing the Church of England and its 12,500 parishes about the sustainability of the system in terms of money or clergy or just energy about the relationship between the parish system and establishment, and about how a system based on geography engages with non-geographical communities, and much more. But you couldn't have a better qualified group of people to ask or answer the key questions we're facing. These guys have written the book on the parish. In fact, most of them have literally written the books on the parish, and in fact, they are to say for sale at the back with a 20% discount at the bookstall, so do check them out later. The format tonight is loosely based on the radio programme The Moral Maze, so it means after a few opening thoughts from our panel, each of them will then go to interrogate our expert witnesses. We'll then have an interval, and after that we'll reflect briefly on what we've heard, and then we're going to be inviting questions from the floor. Okay, so let's start now with our our very first panellist. On the far end we have the Right Reverend Graham Tomlin, author, theologian, Bishop of Kensington, and founder and still president of this wonderful college in which we're sitting. Bishop Graham, when you install a vicar in one of your churches, you give him or her the cure of souls. What does it mean to have the cure of souls in an area if many of those people would never go to church? Um, Well, just to slightly correct you, um, I I don't give them the cure of souls. We share the cure cure of of souls. souls. I do say to them, this is both yours and mine. So there's an expression of uh, both the universal church and uh, the individual church as well. Um, I think it means, and I think this is right at the heart of the parish, sort of theology of parish, that, that in our Church of England, in our way of thinking about church, uh, the vicar of a church is responsible not just for those who go to church. Yes, they are responsible for building up the local Christian congregation, but they also bear a responsibility to everybody and everything that happens in that parish. And that, I think, is a crucial part of Anglican missiology, that we're not just congregational, we're not just interested in who goes to church, we're interested in something much broader than that. Thank you. Um, You were involved in the aftermath of the Grenfell Tower tragedy. And I think many of people watching will have read an article in which the vicar of the local church, while being interviewed about the wonderful work the church had done with survivors um, from the area, had described his church as being an unsuccessful church because it didn't have large numbers um, coming on a Sunday. How does the church understand what success means? Well, I think that was a really interesting case in point. In fact, over this summer, I've I've been involved in two um, sort of national events, I guess, the Grenfell Tower uh, disaster was, was one of them back in June. Uh, but then a few weeks ago, we had the Parsons Green um, attack, which also happened in my area as well. And it struck me these two were very, very different events, uh, very different in scale, very different in, in kind of political implications, very different in their effect upon, um, on the, upon their local community. But it struck me that they had two, one thing in common, which is in both cases, you had a parish church just a couple of hundred yards away from that event. 
You had Grenfell Tower, you had St. Clement's Church, which opened its doors at three o'clock in the morning and suddenly became a great center for uh, the gifts, for respite for people who had been evacuated from the surrounding blocks from the tower itself. In Parsons Green, in a sort of lesser way, uh, the local parish church became a place where people could just go in, sit quiet, take a breath, uh, when they were sort of panicked as a result, as a result of this, this, um, this event. And that spoke to me volumes, I think, about the significance of local parish churches in the sense that if we didn't have the parish system, you'd sure as heck want to invent it. Because the fact is you have a parish church very near to almost anything that happens. And so often in our country, I think we, we often kind of, yeah, we the parish church, it's always there, we kind of ignore it, don't really take, take it for granted. But those two events highlighted the fact that actually when we need it, it's there. Thank you. Uh, one final question is, you, you've written a lot on this issue, and you, a book, uh, probably the title says it all, The Provocative Church, which looked at the future of the church and evangelism and mission. Um, so, I mean, can the church carry on as it is now, or, or is the future going to be some combination of parish system, fresh expressions, or something we haven't yet thought of? I think the basis of it, of it has to be the parish system. I'm a great believer in that. I'm now a bishop. I'm a pillar of the establishment, so you wouldn't expect me to say anything else. Um, but it also seems to me that the parish system has always evolved. It's always changed. It's never been monolithic. We have this idea of a kind of monolithic parish system, which has always been the same ever since it was founded, whenever that was. But actually, that's not true. It's always developed. It's developed different kinds of churches, chapels of ease, wayside chapels, minsters, cathedrals, and everything else. And it's going to need to continue to evolve in that kind of way. And fresh expressions and BMOs and conventional districts and all those sort of technicalities seem to be part of that evolution of the parish system. So I'm a great believer in it, uh, but I do, it cannot be mon monolithic, and it has to change. And, and I guess for parish clergy, I think maybe need to be a little bit less possessive of their own territory and a bit more creative in the way we develop it for the future. Bishop, thank you very much. Right, our second panellist is Paula Gooder, from one pillar of the establishment uh, to someone who, when I first met her, described herself as being a free-range theologian. And, uh, but Paula is somebody who is now um, the Director of Mission Learning and Development in the Diocese of Birmingham, and, but of course in the past is well known as a speaker, as a theologian, a biblical scholar, and in, in many other areas. Um, Paula, if you were asked to reflect on a biblical perspective on parish ministry, what are the kind of phrases or texts that might come to mind? Um, I think, for me, one of the really interesting things is to trace the growth of the early church through both um, the Book of Acts and the letters of Paul. And uh, the really striking thing is that all of the early gatherings of Christians, um, hesitate to use the word church too early, um, are very locally um, they are all located, and they take on um, a sense of the location in which you find them. Um, so, you know, think, for example, about the book of Revelation and the letter to the seven churches. There's very striking messages to each one of the churches which find their identity in locality. So it has ever been thus. The question is how we understand locality and how, therefore, we begin to understand it in the 21st century. Thank you. How, how interesting. But your work now, you're involved with all manner of things, fresh expressions and uh, state churches and urban planting. And I mean, how, how, what does it mean to have a single idea for the locality if all of these different things are going on across each other? Um, I think it's probably very important to recognise that they are not going on across each other. The I, For me, 
the nature of the Church of England is a parish-based system, and in that parish-based system, there are new expressions growing up. Um, just the fact that there may be a new expression of church or congregation does not necessarily mean that it is cutting across the parish system. And I think part of our challenge um, in our modern world is to work out what locality means in the 21st century, how you do networks in a local way, um, you, because we can't exist in any way other than a local way. So how do we understand locality in the 21st century? And then how do we use the parish system to the best of its ability to help us in that kind of notion? Thank you. One, one final thought from another angle. You've been involved, I think, at different times with, with lay, lay teaching lay people, with, with reader ministry. In, in the kind of vision you're beginning to develop, what's the role of lay people in this parish system of the future? Um, huge. Of course I would say <laughs> Excellent. that, being, being a lay person. Um, That's the right answer. Well done. <laughs> um, I think in my glorious rule, when I get to define anything, which I don't, um, we will stop talking about um, ordained ministry and lay ministry as labels. It's not that I don't think ordained ministry is important. I think it's vitally important. But one of the things that I find really difficult is um, always um, people using the term ministry and assuming ordained, and then if you're going to define something that's not ordained, then you give it a label, which is lay ministry. It would be lovely if we could just talk about ministry. And then in its manifestation as ordained and lay. Um, and what does that mean? I am very, very clear that I am called to minister as a lay person um, and to recognise that that calling is as important for the church today as a calling to ordained ministry. Thank you very much. Right, thank you, Paula. So now over to, over to, to Calvin. Calvin Samuel is a Methodist minister and theologian and is currently the principal of the London School of Theology. Calvin, Wesley famously said, the whole world is my parish. If he were around today, would he still say that? I think he would. He is a good Anglican, after all. Of course. Uh, <laughs> so he would. I think one of the things that Wesley wrestled with, of course, was uh, the challenges of working within uh, the boundaries of the parish. Uh, and so that was a beautiful piece of propaganda to justify the fact that he was working across parishes that were not uh, his own. Uh, and that's still one of the challenges for us as Methodists, or indeed if you are free church, uh, just quite how you factor into uh, the grand vision of the parish. Uh, so for example, in the conversation about uh, Grenfell Tower, uh, there is a Methodist church just next to it, Notting Hill Methodist mm -hmm. Church. Uh, it, it, it didn't feature in that conversation. Uh, and that's one of the, the challenges of the particular parish system. It begs the question, where do your ecumenical partners fit into that mm -hmm. uh, vision? Thank you. Um, Calvin, when we first met, you were in Durham. I, I live in Durham. And you had the really unusual position of being in charge of the Wesley Studies Centre, which was in a college working alongside Cranmer Hall, which was training Anglican ordinance. Yeah. So you've had, you, and, and now you're, you're at the LST, so you've got a really, un, you, you have been right across the, across the piece. I'd be interested in your view of the advantages and disadvantages of, of the, the Anglican way and the, and the Methodist way, um, so initially of, of, of ministry, and, and, but also of, of training and how we get to that point. How, what did you learn from that? Thank you. My time in Durham was wonderful. It was a real uh, privilege to work in an ecumenical setting uh, and to think about the way in which we form people for ministry in different traditions. One of the really amazing things is that you didn't get any Methodists looking over the fence and saying, I really fancy being an Anglican. Actually, they looked at Anglicans and thought, thank God I'm a Methodist. <laughs> but exactly the same thing happened exactly. for our, our, yeah. our ordinance as well. They took a good look at Methodists and thought, thank God I'm an Anglican. Uh, 
and it seems to me that's one of the wonderful opportunities for ecumenical working. It gives us a chance to appreciate the tradition in which we stand, to be able to see some of the strengths and weaknesses of it, uh, but to work in partnership. Uh, for me, one of the uh, real challenges of, of this conversation is trying to think through as a non-Anglican, what is the model of the parish that you are working with, which has a space for it, for those who are in free churches, and would we like that space? Uh, can we describe that in a way that is honoring, describe that in a way that uh, has some account of uh, the universality of the church in a local context, uh, but which, is, uh, which enables multivalent voices? Uh, for me, that's a really significant uh, challenge. Thank you very much. I'm sure we'll be coming back to that. <laughs> Thank you very much, Calvin. Over to Jessica. Um, Jessica Martin went from being um, a fellow in a Cambridge Poly College in English literature to a priest in a multi-parish benefice and now a canon in Ely Cathedral. Jessica, I, I was very struck by something that you wrote in the introduction to For God's Sake, in the book you edited or co-edited um, on the parish. You said this, I became a parish priest thinking that if one were flexible and imaginative and generous and physically visible, then the tradition would, would flourish. But then six years later, you said you knew that wasn't true, or at least not true enough. Tell us a bit more about that. Yes. Um, I am hugely influenced by the idea of place and by the idea that you can be a presence in a place, that incarnational ministry that's meant to be you know, at the heart of parish ministry is something that speaks very powerfully to me. Um, I went into a very easy multi-parish benefice. It was 10 miles from Cambridge. It had three little churches, though at one point I was looking after five and at another point after seven, not all of them Anglican. Um, but on the whole, I was looking after three. Nevertheless, I found that because the system um, was one that had grown up organically over quite distinct communities, not large communities, but utterly distinct from each other. Um, I couldn't do presence ministry in several places at once. So what I found myself doing was a series of duplications that were not helped by the fact that the clerical model with which I was working was also clericalist in a way and had this idea of sovereignty and if you get a visit from anyone but the vicar, then it's not really a visit. And um, a uh, ripple of recognition going on out there. Yeah, <laughs> and 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 also my my um, extremely wonderful um, uh, congregations and parishioners um, would, I th I think they were n not on the whole enormously confident about sharing that ministry and trying to give it away was remarkably difficult. I can remember a church warden saying to me, you do the spiritual stuff, I'll keep the roof on. I didn't, I, I was glad he was keeping the roof on. I was deeply, deeply grateful. But I thought the spiritual stuff was what it was about, really. And what would it have taken, do you think, to try to shift that perspective enough to make it work? Um... Well, I'm going to say something perhaps... Um, one of the things uh, that I think is quite difficult is that it's difficult if you're being very, um, very obedient about, say, let's say, the lectionary 
And if you're keeping all the rules about worship that you've said that you will, you'll only do that are authorised and allowed by canon, um, it's extremely difficult to find a way to teach people, particularly people who they've decided they've, they're going to start to go to church and they've decided that they're really, really committed. And really, really committed means they come every month. Oh, how lovely. Or perhaps every six weeks. And so they get a snippet of this and they get a snippet of that and they get a snippet of the other and they're a bit too busy to join groups. And so how do you do that sustained teaching and how do you start in a place that they're going to um, respond to and understand when you're keeping all the rules? Thank you very much. See, it's getting radical already. I told you it would. Right, next up, thank you very much, Jessica, we have Nick Spencer. Nick is the research director of the think tank Theos and the author of so many reports and books that I can't believe you haven't all read at least one of them. These include Doing Good, A Future for Christianity in the 21st Century, and particularly relevant for our purposes, Parochial Vision, The Future of the English Parish. Now, Nick, the blurb for Parochial Vision says, the English parish is in a state of crisis and goes on to say it has become a severe impediment to the church's work today. Not a fan, are we? The first thing I would say is, one, I would counsel against taking everything that's ever written on the blurb <laughs> at face value. It's obviously intended to, to sell the book, and I can tell you it was a triumph in that instance. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm also a firm believer that every moral maze panel needs a David Starkey on it to be needlessly provocative, so I would say we need to get real about this. The parish was designed, the parish as we know it, parish systems today, was designed for an agricultural, pre-mobile, geographically defined society. We live in a post-industrial, highly mobile, and socially defined society. At the moment, it is paid scant attention to by very many people. We need to remind ourselves that approximately 2% of the population will attend an Anglican church on a Sunday morning, and those that do cross parish boundaries willy-nilly. And also, in some instances, it is also an active impediment to mission if one parish feels that another parish doing something in a neighbouring parish might actually be treading on people's toes, they're less inclined to do it. So I think for all those reasons, the parish system as we know it has had its day. That said, I would be for, and I see a lot of benefits in geographical systems, and my argument in that book was that in actual fact we need to go back for the future, back to the system out of which the parish system grew, the late Anglo-Saxon Minster system, which had much larger parishes, collegiate ministries, and above all was missional in focus. Thank you, Nick. Um, why did you not take the next step and deal with the non-geographical communities that are abounding? I think there is a lot of very good, innovative and creative activity that's already going on, actually, with non-geographical communities. And um, I would want to support that and encourage that. But one of the reasons why I certainly wouldn't go the whole hog and move away from geographical communities altogether is for actually some of the reasons already stated. We are physical beings. However fluid our society is, we live in physical places, and our well-being is fundamentally rooted in knowing people and trusting people in those locations. So whereas I think that the socially mediated, socially defined form of Christian fellowship is important and needs encouragement, the challenge we have at the moment is with regards geographically rooted mission and ministry. 
Thank you. Just one final thought. You, you might be well-placed, given your word, to comment on this. Just before I left um, the House of Lords this evening, a, a, a colleague asked me where I was going, and I said, I'm off to chair a panel on the parish system. Has it had its day? And she thought for a moment and said, not if you want to remain established, it hasn't. So is, is there, I mean, so in, in your model, I mean, what, what, how, do we, how do you connect the, um, the hatch-match dispatch, the very localised nature of this with the established church and in the, in the model you describe? I can see where your interlocutor's coming from there, but I've got to be honest, comments like that worry me. I think she was joking, just to be fair. <laughs> the idea that the strategy for the church, if I can use that kind of business speak here, should be determined according to the ties that bind us to the establishment is, I suspect, the fastest route to irrelevancy. I'm going to choose not to take that personally, but we'll move on. <laughs> um, Right, thank you all very much. The, 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 the really, the frustration of, an, of an, I, I could spend the whole evening interviewing any one of you, and I, and I may do so over a glass of wine later, if there's any left. But we're going to move on now, I think, to cross-examining the witnesses. And our first witness, if I could call our first witness up, please, Andrew Rumsey, could you please come and take the witness's chair? It was discussed, apparently, putting them in what looks like a dock here, but we decided that might be overly dramatic. Um, Andrew Rumsey is rector of the Oxford Team Ministry in Southwark Diocese and he's the author of Parish, an Anglican Theology of, of Place, which has recently been published and indeed I'm sure, as you many have seen, is all over, all over the news. Paula Gooder, your witness. Um, one of the things that I was really struck by in reading your book, Andrew, is that there came through it quite a romantic view of place of what I felt like a romantic, particularly your writing style is evocative and, um, and poetic. And so therefore there was a kind of a, a romance around Parish. And I wondered if you would like just to talk a little bit about places which are not naturally romantic and how you understand Parish in the less romantic places in England. What a great question. Good evening. Um, I don't think there are any non-romantic places um, most of, I agree, I, I do tend towards, yeah, um, writing in that style, but I do, mo the book arose mainly from urban ministry in places where you wouldn't naturally imagine uh, the, the classic kind of parochial model to persist. Um, I have, I wrote in the book in a slightly lyrical style because I wanted to plumb something of the, uh, the depths of what the word parish evokes and has meant so that we know what the legacy is. The part of the danger is for the church in the present time to, um, because it's got this huge trailing tale of tradition, is to operate only in uh, a present strategic mode which doesn't quite understand the depths of or the riches of the inheritance that we've got. So I think I was trying to uh, express something of that depth and that requires a bit of poetry, I think. But I agree, and I, sorry to just finish, uh, Paula, the, the kind of flip side that the the alter ego of, of the parochial mindset is, is nostalgia. And nostalgia is, is both a, a really negative, problematic thing, but also far more productive and creative than it's usually seen to be. Uh, the longing for home, which nostalgia literally is, is, 
is one of the deep cries of the soul, and therefore I, I, I'm interested in nostalgia as a motivator of, of human society and belonging. And I think there's a lot more in nostalgia than the kind of mere nostalgia that it's sometimes uh, portrayed as. I was really taken by your reflections on uh, theology of place and the reminder that the universality of the church is, is rooted in, in locality always. Mm. I'd really like to hear a little more about your reflections on parish and what is the, the model you are using for this shared cure of souls. If it is shared between the bishop and the vicar, uh, what do you imagine, for example, your free church colleagues are doing mm. uh, in that context? And how do you unpack that? Brilliant question, essential question. What, one of the greatest failings of the Anglican parish system and of the established church has been a territorial arrogance that uh, assumes that it possesses the land in uh, a way that is neither realistic nor productive. And uh, Therefore, uh, the parochial ideal is not, it is clearly not something that only belongs to the Church of England. I mean, internationally, that's true. Um, I have been fascinated to uh, be involved a little bit with the new parish movement in free churches in the United States. Next month, there's a conference in Birmingham, the new parish conference, which is all mainly from non-Anglican churches who are exploring the parochial ideal uh, and trying to reinterpret locality. And uh, I'm thoroughly committed to that. That's a bit general. In terms of the specifics, uh, we work in partnership locally. And the end, what I call in the book, the end of entitlement for the Church of England is a very good thing for collaborative ministry. Um, sadly, it often takes a crisis of resources to get us working together as we should be doing. Um, but uh, in any case, that is, uh, that is, it is the only way to operate. And so I think this kind of... Anglicans have had, uh, because of their established status, they have had a... Uh, a historic uh, inheritance of, 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 of locality which has uh, excluded. And one of the consequences of that was to lose the initiatives in the new cities and towns in the 19th century. And it was the free churches that took the civic uh, ground because the, uh, the parish was too allied to this kind of landowning idea that wouldn't admit Methodism, other churches that came out of the evangelical revival. And in cities, uh, the civic life, parochial life, has been uh, has long not been in Anglican control. Um, and uh, so, sorry, I'm, it's a very general answer, Calvin. But I th I thoroughly agree with the premise, and uh, I'm committed to working ecumenically. I wonder if I could just push you. Yeah, do because <laughs> you said really wonderful things. I still haven't actually heard what the model is. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what is the model that allows you to hold on to a, a theology of place, hold on to a, a parish concept, but which has space within it that enables free churches to work uh, as partners with you? That, that's what I'd really like to hear a little more about. Wonderful. Yeah, okay. 
Well, I don't, I don't have a model uh, because uh, every situation that I've ministered in is different. And so there is a, a different pattern in each place. Um, however, there has to be some kind of... I mean, most... Take an organization like London Citizens would be a classic example of a kind of parochial initiative which is working across typical boundaries, collaboratively across denominations, um, and with different interested groups, Christian and non. That would be a fantastic community organizing model that could include a great deal of what is good about parochial ministry, but not uh, the parish doesn't own community organizing. It's a stakeholder within it. And so uh, other groups that I've been involved in, South London, the Transition Town Movement, which is a, 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 a movement to, to create ecologically sustainable communities, again, is another kind of, it, it captures something of the parochial ideal, but it's working across the usual boundaries, and we don't own it. Andrew, I want to pick you up on something you just said about every situation in which you've ministered is different. I think that goes to the very heart of the issues that face us today, whereas seven or eight hundred years ago, virtually every place was the same or very similar. Today, people will find themselves ministering in parishes that have tens of thousands of people living in them and very possibly hundreds of people worshipping in the church. And others, I mean, Jessica mentioned that she was ministering six churches. Sometimes you'll go to rural Lincolnshire, you can perhaps double that figure. Surely in those instances where very, very busy clergy are being stretched across multiple parishes, most of which do not have a sustainable worshipping community by themselves, the parish system has already broken down and needs replacement. Great question, Nick. The, the, I think it's important to distinguish between the parish structure and system with its resources of ministry and buildings and the parochial ideal. Yes, the structure is ailing, and I would agree with you, is broken in many places. So I've got colleagues in the West Country who've got 15 parishes, 15 grade one listed buildings, uh, 15 congregations of a dozen people, 15 PCCs. It's, it's ridiculous and, and un utterly unsustainable. Uh, so the system itself is, uh, uh, within a generation, is going to reach a point where we cannot, uh, probably sooner than that in many places already, is uh, not feasible. However, uh, at the, we therefore have to find ways of uh, changing the structure, but without abandoning the parish principle. Um, and I could talk for ages about what that is, but I'll leave it at that. Andrew Rumsey, thank you very much. Thank you. Our second witness tonight is Andy Milne. Andy, would you please come up and take the hot seat? <laughs> Andy is um, a church army evangelist. He's the founder and leader of Sorted, a group of fresh expressions based in Bradford, and the author of The DNA of Pioneer Ministry, which um, certainly I've had the pleasure of just reading. Um, Andy, welcome. Uh, Jessica Martin, your witness. I found your book very moving in um, quite a number of places. And I want to ask you about one particular problem that you uh, um, tackled, which is that your 
little group of teenagers who had been transformed together um, and therefore had changed because they had gone from being a kind of chaotic group to being um, a community that were bound together by the Holy Spirit and by worshipping together, had huge trouble when a bunch of 13-year-olds came in behind them who hadn't had that experience. And your answer to that was to say, well, we've got to have another little community. We've got to be fissiparous and sort of plant and plant in tiny little um, uh, sections. And actually, although um, it's a very extreme example, that's something that's happening all the time in churches, that people who grow together aren't necessarily, therefore, able to be enormously open to those who haven't made that journey. And I guess I want to ask you, what about a, um, a very... Um, perhaps uh, both brave and perhaps a little fragile fresh expression, how it can become something that um, is less fissiparous, how it can grow organically to be a larger single thing. Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, we, we started, started off in Bradford with young people from very little church background, just to set the scene quickly. Um, got to know lots of young people in a local secondary school who lived across three different parishes and we started bringing them, them together and formed this sort of fresh expression of church. Um, there would be an activity night on a Friday night where you'd get maybe 40 young people come along with a short gospel message. Then from there those who were interested could come into a small group to explore Christian faith and then from there into a worship service. Um, as the group you were mentioning got older and became sort of aged about 18 to 22. Um, what was happening was that we discovered young people would then come from the school still who were about 13 and they would see these scary 19 year olds sometimes smoking a cigarette on the door and think I'm not going in there. So it was more of a problem of we, we tried to get them to come in but then we discovered they weren't coming in and nothing would make them come in. Um, we also had some quite vulnerable adults so we took the decision after a lot of thinking and so on to, to start again with a younger group and develop the existing group into a bunch of young adults. Now, since that time, it's been a, quite a process, but since that time, we were able to take a small number of the young adults back in to help plant the new stuff with the young people group and then eventually form an all-age worship. So we now have young people and young adults together. But... It took, it took time and we found this all the way through that sometimes we have to go out to where people are at, build relationship with them, um, form Christian community with them, start the journey of, of faith with them and then later on gradually introduce them to others in the body of Christ. Um, so for example with, with local churches um, we found some, some of our young people at first had no connection with local Christians. And if we'd have just taken them in initially to meet others from the local church, it probably wouldn't have worked. In fact, I try, in fact, some people tried to make this happen and I, I discouraged it because I knew what our young people were like at that point. Lots of excluded young people from tough families. And I knew some of the people in the church had certain expectations of how young people should behave. And on the one or two occasions they came together, it was a disaster. <laughs> so... We had to take a much more careful approach. We're having a joint baptism service next month 
take two or three young people once at a time to have a mini interview in a church and build gradual links slowly over time, but, but never losing the intention of building the links between the different Christian age groups. So actually, um, what you've been doing is concentrating on, as it were, some very flat, fragile plants, growing some fragile plants and needing to protect those fragile plants. But you are also working in partnership with people who are having to do a much more general and broad sweep. Do you think they belong together in the end? I, I do and I don't. Let me explain. Okay. <laughs> I think that you know, so for example, you first mentioned about young people who would come through to be Christians, young people baptized, confirmed, and so on. We always try and keep a group for people who have never been before. Because if they come into the worship setting straight away, they, some of them like it, but then they come back the following week, and then the following week, and it's too structured for them. So we need something that's much looser. Much, something that's much more flexible to who they are and where they're at at that moment in time, but gives them the opportunity to take another step and perhaps explore faith in another environment. Um, so we've got different groups. So we've got two youth expressions, one young adult expression, a young parent's expression. But equal, and, and, and those people being in those groups are often the best evangelists to go and reach their peers. And doing church in a way that's sort of familiar to their culture, their context, their environment, their locality, because we sometimes move these groups around to be in the best place to reach people, enables that mission to keep going and enables them to keep reaching new people and not have the problem which sometimes we find with churches where they're struggling to reach anybody who's not Christian. So we have that system of a network of groups, but at the same time we work really intentionally to try and join those groups together every now and again, build connections. So as they get to 18, 19, 20, there are young adult Christian groups, worship groups they can join with Sorted, or they can join an existing local church. And some do one, some do the other, some do both. Um, we're really into trying to give them as many options. And it's been a very long time since um, I was a young person, um, but I have two of them living at home with me at the moment, and I um, um, uh, wondered to see that they now come with devices like this, surgically implanted to their hands, mm. and they are on them all the time. They are members, fierce members of virtual communities. It's how they live their lives. How do you persuade them? How do you engage with people in that generation who are eminently comfortable with virtual communities that actually embodied physical communities matter? Yeah, good question. Um, I think one of the things we found was we opened a group up a few years ago and we got, the, got some money, got an Xbox, got the latest games and so on. And then this group of lads, about 10 of them came down and to our surprise, they weren't interested in any of the sort of computer game stuff. And I said, oh, do you not do computer games? Are you into something completely different? Uh, you're not into consoles or gaming or anything? They said, oh, no, we are. We're really into it. But we do it all the time at home. So when they came to us, they wanted to play football. They wanted to play hide and seek. I was like, I didn't think kids even knew what hide and seek was <laughs> nowadays. Um, so, so in some ways, we provide an alternative in that sense. At the same time, we try and develop online things, Facebook groups, so on and so forth, although the safeguarding 
protections that have to be put in place are getting more and more complicated as time goes by. So we're, we're sort of trying hard to work with the, those that want to be online as much as possible. Um, but I do still think, I'll, I'll be honest, I think it is still a real question, how do we develop fresh forms of church for people who are only glued to the phone and so on? And yeah, I don't know the full answer. Right. And Andy, thank you very much indeed. <laughs> Our third witness is Alison Milbank. Alison, would you come up and join us, please? Thank you very much. Alison Milbank is Associate Professor at the University of Nottingham and Canon Theologian at Southern Minister. She is the author with Andrew Davison of For the Parish, A Critique of Fresh Expressions. Graham, your witness. Alison, hello. And um, uh, as a fan of the Parish Church, I enjoyed your book uh, a great deal. I guess one of my questions, I guess, would be... Um, uh, along these lines, it, it, uh, isn't the parish system effectively something built for Christendom? In other words, it's something that emerged out of a particular period where the, uh, the nation, the culture was, was Christian. It was about providing um, pastoral care, um, rites of passage for communities across the nation. And therefore, the parish system sort of in, in, in inherently is slightly static. Uh, I think of that, you know, the phrase in the prayer book, you know, the church militant here in earth, that sense of, you know, rock-solid parish churches planted in different places, which are very good at providing rites of passage, patching, matching, dispatching, but not very well adapted for, for mission and outreach and, and um, a, a really imaginative ways of reaching people for whom church is a completely different culture. And isn't it also true to say that, you know, these days a lot of the energy in, in terms of outreach, evangelism, growing the church often comes through movements like the Fresh Expressions Movement, churches like Andes, um, resource churches, minster churches, you know, other kind of patterns rather than the parish system. How do you respond to that? That was quite a question. Sorry, it's a bit long. It was about 12 <laughs> questions. Yeah. And I'll try, and, I'll try and sort of untangle them. Um, as you said, they're very, very challenging. Um, the first one is the historical one. Um, yes, it grows up. I, I mean, church militant doesn't mean that it's safe. It means that it's being challenged. And for example, um, yes, it begins to grow up when the church is a missionary thing. When Pope Gregory says, go and put a cross and go and preach there. And so it develops, sure. Um, the church has gone up and down. When Father Dolling went to Portsea, at the end of the 19th century, great slum ritualist priest, the children there had never heard of Jesus. You know, we've got this fantasy sometimes about the past. It's only occasionally the church has actually got in touch with the working classes. So this idea that everything was wonderful in the past and now it's hard for us, that's not true. It's gone up and down. Secondly, you go to a Buddhist country, you go to an Islamic country, you go to a Hindu country. They've all got their own versions of holy places, holy people and holy places going together, as John Donne said, everywhere. Because, as Andrew said, there is a, we are physical beings and we need physicality in our worship. Let me think of the next one <laughs> that you asked. Um, the one about the energy. 
I mean, one of the, it is true that there is wonderful energy from the evangelical movement, and I honor it, and I respect it, and it's a charism I would not be without, and I wish that my bit of the church, Anglo-Catholics, would have a lot more of it, um, though they do, and um, the um, Center of Community and Theology is, I don't know the report's out yet, but it's about to come out, about um, high church, traditional high church parishes in London, mainly urban priority areas, small numbers, doubling in growth. Now, growth is not, for me, the only sign of success, but it shows that they can do it. And how have they done it? Doing very traditional things well, engaging with the community, trusting in what they're doing. And evangelicals, they trust in what they're doing. And for me, part of our problem is that we've lost faith in the project. Um, another interesting thing is that, of course, in the church planting movement, there has been an enormous regeneration of churches. And in that model, they are regenerating parishes. And um, I would, in fact, our bishop has encouraged my own, my cathedral is a parish church as well as a cathedral, and the bishops actually challenged us to actually do our own version. I don't know if I answered all of them, did yep, I? you did pretty well for all those ones. Thank you. Um, if I can ask just one more before I um, pass on to, um, to Calvin. I guess it's a version of the question Nick was answering, asking a little bit earlier on in terms of, um, actually, is the parish system really actually working in the sense that we've talked about Rural parishes where you've got six, eight, 12 parishes grouped together into one place. Can you really call that the parish system anymore? And even in urban contexts, um, people don't really know where their parish boundaries exist, uh, unless when they have to get married and they have to work out what parish they're in. Uh, most of the time, if they want to go to church at all, they'll just find something that sort of fits their style, their style of worship, their style of music, and they'll go there rather than going to their parish church. So therefore, parish doesn't really mean a great deal in urban context either. So you could argue on both of those counts, urban and rural, actually the parish system isn't really functioning in any sort of proper sense of the word. Another big question. Um, country, my son-in-law is in Lincoln Diocese, where, of course, they're putting an awful lot of money into more clergy, unlike most of the Church of England. They've got the money, mind you. Um, but, you're, again, you're equating the parish with the priest. On Sunday, I took a service, morning kind of version of morning prayer, in a village that hasn't really... It, it's had a very, very choppy history, not as it just been part of a group, but at some points it's had no priest at all and has had to make do with the cathedral kind of zooming in and things. I arrive, they've sorted the service, they're ringing the bell, several of them are, they've got everything sorted because they were actually, in some ways, the lack of priests in France is actually regenerating the Catholic Church there because there is a huge lay revival because in fact the dearth of clergy in the French countryside if you've ever been on holiday there there's hardly one to be seen but there is a huge lay revival and they are kind of moving into new roles that they never thought they'd have. Now the the big urban thing is different that you do have to remember that people live a lot of people live in middle size towns and cities. When you're in London, you can tend to think that it's, it's all like that. And if you, I mean, Nottingham, for example, the big city where I am, everybody there, they don't live in Nottingham. 
they live in Carlton or they live in Netherfield. And they'll tell you, and the gangs work like this too. Gangs know all about locality, God help us. Um, You know, there's a problem with how the church matches onto those identities. And there my advice would be you just have to go out where the people are and find out where the growth points in that community are, where the pressure points, and just pop yourselves there and see what happens. No, thank you. Calvin. Thank you. In your book for the parish, you, you offer a number of critiques uh, of fresh expressions. I'd like to talk about two of them. Uh, one, you accuse them of uh, fostering segregation, that uh, different types of Christians uh, congregate in various places, and you use uh, Howe versus, uh quote that uh, 11 o'clock in North Carolina is the most segregated uh, time there. To what extent is that a fair criticism, given what you've said earlier about the Church of England, uh, the Anglo-Catholic wing of it that you belong to, the evangelical wing of it? To what extent are, is it a fair critique that fresh expressions are any more segregated than any other part of the Church of England? I think what we were, we were not critiquing, and you have to remember this, we weren't critiquing any kind of evangelistic outreach. We were responding to a report And it was the language of the report that we took apart. Um, We did, you know, I did critique one, there was one particular critique of one particular fresh expressions where they had communion as an option in a niche. But generally, it was the lack of connectivity. And yes, you want to allow people like Andy to be free to reach out to those young people who will not darken the doors of a church. But he was working towards connectivity and coming together. And of course, the irony is how things have played out is it's all played out in an incredibly Anglican way. So do I fear for my own part of the Church of England? Yes, but I'm an Anglican and a Christian. Christian first, Anglican second, Anglo-Catholic third, that you can't obviously separate all those identities. And for me, what a parish is, is a place of holding different kinds of identities together, because that's the problem. We're all fissiparous inside. My second element is uh, one of the other critiques was around uh, the question of uh, using market forces type terminology. Uh, I think there's a a language of offering the people what they want is clearly not something that church should be doing. Uh, to what extent is precisely the kind of work that Andy's doing, which is uh, responding to the needs of particular communities, not precisely the genius of, of a parish, uh, to, to see what the needs are uh, and to attune them to the locality? Well, if we get a bit Aristotelian here, what you're doing, you're not giving people what they want in the sense of their immediate cravings. You're having a telos for where you want, for where their true happiness lies. And then you reach out to the people and you help them towards that. And um, it probably wasn't a good idea to get the Xbox. But wasn't it wonderful that you're actually giving them what they need, which is friendship, community, play. 
because, okay, you can play on a computer thing, it's terribly kind of instrumentalized, and you're always coming up against these bits where the edge comes, and you can't go any further. When you do creative play in hide-and-seek, you can go anywhere, do anything. So I do, I think we need to make a distinction between a kind of market giving people what they want and helping people to find their true desires and using any good way to do it. Thank you very much, Alison Milbank. <laughs> okay. Our final witness for this evening is David Goodhue. David, would you please come up and join us? Uh, David Goodhue is Director of Ministerial Practice at Cranmer Hall, a theological institute in Durham. He's the Director of the Centre for Church Growth Research and the author of various books on church growth, including Church Growth in Britain, 1980 to the Present, and Towards a Theology of Church Growth. Paula Gooder, your witness. Um, David, an evening such as this is predicated on the understanding that at one end of a spectrum is the parish and at the other end of a spectrum is fresh expressions. You know, we've, it's been set up that way. To what extent would you accept that these two are opposites and to what extent would you want to dispute then? Thank you. Can, can I just say that it's very kind of you to credit me with writing those books. I only edited them. I, I should oh, stress, um, not least because one of the authors is, is sitting opposite <laughs> me. Uh, um, Oops, so, so, but sorry about that. <laughs> it, it, Paul, in going to your question, I would absolutely refute the idea of this dichotomy of parish and fresh expression. Um, and in particular, you know, I mean, sitting in London, of course, where uh, if we thought of what the parish was like in, I don't know, 1800, well, then most of London, as we know it, was not here. Um, and I, I would want to go further than that because I, I think one of the key things that's not been really flagged in this debate is the huge demographic change that is going on in the UK at the moment. And I, I fear for us in, in, in the C of E that there's, there's this kind of Miss Marple notion of parish out there. Um, and, and it's not coping with the fact that the British population has quite dramatically grown in the last few decades and massively changed. Um, and so if you think of a, a Milton Keynes, for example, 50 years ago, Milton Keynes basically wasn't there. It's now bigger than towns like Southampton and Norwich. And that means the parish has to freshen up. So... In that sense, therefore, um, what, do you what, what do you think would be the manifestation of the parish freshening up? What does it look like in practice? That's a huge question. I, I suppose I think there are, are a few pointers. One, I think the main one is to get a bit more humble. I think this, this implied territorial imperialism, you know, it's my patch, I mean, is, is for the birds. Um, you know, we're a post-Christendom now, and, and actually it might be quite uh, a bit more relaxing if we, we accepted that. And that means, for instance, multiple forms of church, um, and, and, and rather seeking to say, what, how can we make the blessings of Jesus most readily available? I mean, Ramsey talked about making God findable. Now, absolutely, the parish does that, but actually the traditional parish only partially does that, I would say. A different form of humility, I think, is learning from non-Anglican churches. And particularly, I mean, it's interesting having this meeting in London. In London, there's been a huge growth in the number of congregations in the last 
30, 40 years, I mean, something like 50% more congregations exist in London than when Mrs. Thatcher came to power. Most of them are outside the historic churches. And I think it would be great if the historic churches, and especially the C of E, started learning from them um, rather than what it tends to do, which is ignore them. And perhaps the third thing I would add is um, to think about the demographic change in terms of the UK becoming increasingly multi-ethnic. Um, the C of E has a noticeably smaller proportion of the diversity that's coming into this country than a number of other Christian traditions. And I think we should be thinking very hard about how we might learn from others. David, hi. Um, when Jesus was asked the question, what's the most important commandment? He uh, said famously, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And um, that command to love your neighbor is absolutely crucial to Christian faith. Um, could it not be argued that um, things like fresh expressions and network churches actually enable you to avoid your neighbor by going past your their house and clubbing together with people who are like you? And actually, you don't have to love the person who next door. Because the great thing about neighbors is you don't choose your neighbors. Uh, they just live next door to you. And there's something about the power system that brings neighbors together and makes you love your neighbor in a way that you can sort of escape it a little bit through some of these other forms of church. How would you respond to that critique? I, I think, I, I mean, in terms of, uh, of the scriptural model, I think that really sticks in my mind is the pairing of Luke and Acts. And yeah, uh, in, underneath a lot of this debate is a tendency to play off kingdom, which kind of dominates Luke, um, and church, which is rather more common in, later on in the New Testament. But, of course, you've got Luke who writes them both. And I would want to say that the formation of Christian community, however it's done, enables you to connect with wider community. And that's the way to see, see it, rather than playing them off each other. I'd also say I've seen some exceedingly inward-focused traditional parishes um, and some exceedingly outward-focused fresh expressions. And I don't think it's about the type of um, unit it's something um, far deeper about the kind of the theology um, and the spirituality that's going on there. And if I can uh, ask one further question, which I guess is a, a critique that I think is made in um, Alison's book of Fresh Expressions, which is that I guess often in with, with um, some forms of church life, there's this dichotomy made between the, the gospel, which is always the same, and the kind of packaging which can change from time to time, and therefore you you know, you can have, you know, the same gospel, but it just is presented in different forms with different cultures and so on. And I guess the critique would be actually that actually you can't quite separate them out quite that way in the sense that there's sort of the, a bit like the, you know, the medium is the message or to put it in Christian terms, you know, incarnation is incarnation. Uh, you can't quite out separate out these two, two things. There isn't some, you know, core essential thing that's always the same. Uh, it always is embodied uh, in, this, in, in this way. So you can't quite make that separation. Do, do you think you can make that separation? Would you want to defend that idea that there is a, a core gospel and an outward packaging that, that can change from place to place? Or do you actually see there's merit in this, this criticism that actually uh, you cannot make that, that distinction? I, I, I mean, I think to some degree I'd go with medium as message, but of course that doesn't entirely work, and not least because the parish has changed a huge amount over time. 
So on that basis, parish as we do it now is problematic because it certainly isn't like parish as we did it in the 17th century and George Herbert sort of, you know, being able to sort of more or less know every parishioner personally. I, I think it works the other way. I, I'm reminded with, with Calvin on the panel of that great Anglican John Wesley. Um, and the whole point is what Wesley got was you had an industrializing 18th century, these massively expanding towns, and the Church of England was nowhere. And he went out into these burgeoning towns and it effectively reinvented parish. But I think with a whole load of very helpful Anglican DNA in there. And I would say we've got to do the same. Thinking of John Wesley, um, what he um, unleashed was sometimes more than he was quite comfortable with. And when the spirit moves, you're never really quite sure where it's going to go. Um, so you see him getting quite anxious about his, the, the, the ecstatic ladies crying love, 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 and saying, hmm, this isn't how I was trained to do it. Um, is there not, I, I, looking at how fresh expressions evolve, how new communities, new, new, new worshipping communities evolve, quite often, um, it takes patience and it takes time and it's uh, and it's very and, and it changes quite quickly. I wonder whether you might want to say something about the relationship between something that is extremely mobile and changing and fragile and likely to you know, to, to, to crash or to have to remake itself. And quite a number of the, uh, the, the, the groups that, 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 that you talk about in the DNA of Pioneer Ministry are changed by now, even since it came out, um, as, against what, uh, as against what might hold at the centre. Do we, do we perhaps need both? Uh, totally. And I would say I, I, I'm, I'm sort of... A, a, I, I'm not a total fan of fresh expressions and pioneer ministry, and I think some, some have been brilliant, some I've got some questions about. And I think I would say one of the, the key things, and I, one of the brilliant things about Sorted, is the long haul. You have to be in it for the long haul. I would go the other way, though. I think a lot of the, the, the um, s s uh, talk about parish can have a rather idealised view of parish which doesn't allow for innovation. I mean, one of the things I, I'd love to, I mean, I'm personally, I'm hugely fed by traditional Anglican tradition, choral music, wonderful stuff. But, you know, the choral tradition in Anglicanism is hardwired into white middle-class Britain. Now, it just, you know, and if it's going to live in 50 years' time, it's got to jump out of that somehow. Now, you know, and, and there, there's a, a, a deficit of innovation, not a surfeit. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, David Goodhume. I'd just like to say a huge thank you on your behalf to, to what a wonderful collection of expert witnesses. Um, and I, I feel I've learned a great deal today and been profoundly moved by the range of experiences and passion that's been brought to the table and also to the panel for some superb questions. 
We're going to take a break now um, for 20 minutes for an interval. And please do think about questions you may have when we come back. Because when we return, we're going to reflect briefly on what we've heard and then have a broaden out the conversation to see what else you may want to ask of the panel or perhaps even, if they're kind enough, of the witnesses. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. What a very good audience you are. Excellent. Despite the continuing provision of wine in the, in the outside area, I'm most impressed. And again, apologies to those watching it live stream on Facebook. Maybe you've got your own wine at home. That's the best we can manage. Um, again, what I want to come down now is I'm going to ask the panellists for their reflection. I mean, you all got to, dear panel, you got to interview or interrogate these, these poor witnesses, but very well, I must say so. I'd be interested to know what you thought of what you heard. And also, is there anything that you, are you surprised by what wasn't there? Was there anything missing? Bishop Graham, would you start us off? What did you make of what you've heard? I guess two, two observations. One uh, issue which came up, which I guess I maybe wasn't expecting, but maybe should have done. Um, and uh, it was really Calvin's point about the um, interplay between the kind of Anglican parish system mm -hmm. and uh, churches of other denominations that, um, and how that works. And uh, as Calvin alluded, certainly in the uh, North Kensington area, we've been very conscious of that. Obviously, you've got your Anglican parishes there, but there's also... Um, you know, Notting Hill Methodist Church, you've got um, Latimer Christian Centre, you've got Pentecostal churches, the Roman Catholic Church down the road. There's actually quite a kind of array of, of churches in that area. And I think Calvin asked the question, you know, what's the model um, for how that kind of works together? And I, and I do wonder whether, whether one of the models that we could explore in this is, is of how different churches, I think, I think one of the things we think do with parish churches is we think every parish church is the same. Every parish church basically does the same things and does the same sorts of activities. Actually, the reality is they often don't. Uh, you know, you've got one parish church that may be particularly brilliant with young people, another parish church that is great with, with the elderly, another parish church that is great at music or, or, or um, you know, has a fantastic choral tradition or whatever. And it seems to me that's actually fine and right and proper, but you can extend that beyond parishes to churches of other denominations. And so if, you, if you're an Anglican parish and, there's a, and you, you haven't got that many young people, but down the road you've got a Baptist church that does a brilliant job with young people, don't try to replicate it, just rejoice in the fact that actually you can, some, you can somehow work together on these things. So it seems to me that that, that question of the sort of charism of particular churches, uh, the parish system can kind of slightly equalize that if we're not careful, uh, and we have to sort of just recognize uh, what different churches bring, both parish churches and, and churches of other uh, denominations too. So I suppose that's one angle um, that uh, I was really fascinated by in our discussions earlier on. I guess the second question, which uh, maybe was lurking beneath the surface that uh, we didn't bring out, is this um, tension between, I think it came out in your question to me uh, earlier on, maybe, which I don't think I probably answered, um, which is this thing about, you know, what are we aiming at in, in parish life, in church life? Are we aiming at a kind of presence within a, um, a particular locality? Uh, and therefore, it doesn't really matter whether the church is small or large, because it's just, just there, uh, offering worship and having a building and a, and a place and a priest and so on. Uh, or actually, are we looking for church growth? Are we looking for people to come to church and to come to faith and to, to, to grow in that faith and so on? And it seems to me that, that um, I quite like what uh, I think it's Bishop Paul Bayes in, in Liverpool has as a bit of a, um, a sort of slogan he uses, which is we, we need a bigger church to make a bigger difference. You know, we do want people to come to faith. We do want the people to, to know life in Christ because we think it's a good thing uh, to be in touch with your creator. Uh, through Christ, to be filled with the Holy Spirit in the way that human beings were always meant to be. That's a good thing. We want more and more people to know that. Um, but we don't just want that to have a big church, because that church, we hope, is going to make a big difference in terms of its witness uh, and its, um, the impact it has upon local communities. And so uh, 
I, I'm always wary of kind of opposing these two things as if they are somehow opposites. And you've got to be, you know, and we sometimes box each other into a corner. You're either into church growth or you're into church presence. Uh, and I think I want to be quite strongly both, not half and half, but really full on for both. That's really helpful. Thank you very much. Paula, what, what struck you? Um, I think one of the things that struck me most strongly from our conversation is, is difference and how we aren't at the moment very good either at articulating the difference or working out what difference it mean it makes to be in church in different places and whether we can in fact be much more relaxed about parish ministry looking different um, in different contexts, even in neighbouring urban parishes, let alone between urban and suburban and rural and uh, market town and, and all of that, and being able to name what is different um, and be able to celebrate difference and not be worried too much about um, the fact that, you know, my parish doesn't look like your parish. Can we actually be kind of being more kind of relaxed about that? Um, and on the back of that, though, what I would have, what we haven't heard yet, in one of the official or unofficial strap lines of the Church of England is a presence in every community. Um, and I think for me, the question is, on the back of the difference question, actually, what does it mean to be a presence in every community? Kind of picking up a little bit of what Graham was saying. Um, if we were to say, this is an effective presence in a community, what is this? It would be for me a really big question. Mm, what an interesting question. Thank you very much. Calvin. Uh, my observation really follows off the end of Paul's comment. For me, it was David's reflections, particularly in London, of the massive change to uh, the Church of Christ in this place um, and the fact that uh, not just the Church of England, but lots of the uh, historic churches just aren't engaging with that well enough. Uh, in my own context at London School of Theology, we are simply not engaging as well as we should with uh, South Asian Christians, with uh, Chinese Christians, with black majority churches, etc. And this is London. This is where they are. Uh, and so there's a serious piece of work for us to do. Um, and if you look around this room tonight, it simply reflects some of the challenges that we have. Mm. I think the second thing for me was uh, we, we managed not to talk about money. <laughs> which, we're, we're English, which please. is the <laughs> elephant in the room. Uh, part of the challenge of the parish system, as with many other types of uh, church uh, structure, is that we can't actually mm. afford to, to manage what we have in the way that we have done in the past. Mm. And so that, that's a very significant conversation that we've not engaged with tonight. Thank you. Jessica. I think I would like to just push back a little bit at what Bishop Graham has just said, because I do think that the dilemma that any parish priest has got is about whether what you're doing is fishing for people from a particular boat, whether you're building up, uh, whether you're putting all your energy into building up a specific community that you will, you will draw from the most likely places of your geographical location, or whether you are imagining yourself as present for absolutely everyone in a kind of sacrificial way because you know that most of absolutely everyone are not going to fill your churches up. So whether you're going to do a kind of civic thing or whether you're going to you do a kind of gathered thing. And I don't actually think it is possible to do both. So, for example... You may, you're quite likely to think that it's really important to be in your local school or schools, 
but are you going to think that it's really important that you to be there for all the children by seeing all the children in a, some kind of collective worship situation or by being a, doing a kind of chaplaincy model thing? Or actually, are you going to use it as a pond to fish from and do something where the parents are going to be very grateful because you look after some of their children after school and after a while you might begin to make that into a discipling thing? Those are two different models, and it's not really possible to do both. So I think we have a dilemma about whether we do whole community and not really expect a lot back, which perhaps we can no longer afford to do, but which is the basis for quite a lot of parochial understanding, or whether we go, it's just a boat, we'll fish from it. Thank you, Jessica. Nick? Uh, a few short thoughts. Um, I think what will remain with me tonight, like anything else, is Andy's story about young people coming along to play football. Mm. Um, that's as close to a redemptive story as I've heard in the last week or so, and I think it's rather beautiful, actually. That's what you go to church for, to play football. More seriously, that's what you go to church for, for embodied physical relationship that you don't get elsewhere. I think that's um, tremendously encouraging. Reflective of the, I think, the unanimity, really, among the witnesses that um, a physical presence geographically rooted, uh, a determination to relate to one another, um, not because we've chosen to, so to speak, but because we live with one another, is absolutely central, it's incarnational, and must be guarded over against all, uh, all inclinations in a society such as our own to engage in, and, and, and spend time with one another because we are like one another, because we, because we have some sort of virtual community. So I think there's a very strong, and to my mind, entirely right recognition of that physical, geographical, localised presence. The real challenge, of course, is what that looks like today, picking up Andrew's comment about keeping the parish principle, not the parish structure. I think the danger with the current structure, such as it is, is that it actually divides rather than unifies, whereas, as Graham was saying earlier, you know, there are parishes down the road and other churches down the road that will be doing excellent forms of activity that you don't need to replicate in your own church. And as it were, sending people there, and that's in heavily inverted commas, is a way of building up unity rather than feeling that I have to set up an equivalent in my own church to compete against them. I think renegotiating, as it were, the scope and boundaries of our physical and geographical loyalty crucial to the future of the parish. Right, Nick, thank you very much. Right, the time has come to broaden the conversation. Um, so hopefully it's over to you for some questions. If you have got a question, could you put your hand up? David Chervington will bring a microphone to you. It'd be very helpful if you could stand up to ask the questions so that the people at home can see more than the top of your head and your hand. That'd be really helpful. And if you, just, if you want to like to give us your name, you're welcome to. That would be great. Is it on? Should be on. Thank you. May I give one example of trying to do a parish principle and changing parish structure, or perhaps restoring parish structure? Um, six rural parishes in the uh, Norwich Diocese in 2008 combined their small declining congregations into one congregation. They did that agreeing to... Um, well, the PCCs together as one body decided uh, what service of communion that would be, BCP or common worship. They chose common worship. They decided what time every Sunday morning that would be. And 
the church congregation rotates around the six churches over six Sundays. Is that kind of a plan, um, idea of parish church and, and parish boundaries um, something that should be considered for the future and can it be considered for the future of parish systems, for example, in the countryside? Thank you very much. There are quite a few hands. I think I may take two or three and then invite some comments in case they're on similar themes. Yes. Could I have um, one? There's a woman whose hand up. Who's got, I can only see a black arm with pink poking out the end of it. So, um, on, sorry, over here, David. Thank you. Sorry, I'm going to let you run around. This is just the fun bit. I'm going to point on either side, one after the other. Thank you very much. Can you put your hand up again? Yes. Hi. Thank you. Um, just a quick question in regards to... I don't come from the Anglican and Methodist tradition, so I'm totally coming in as from a different one. However, um, I've observed that on our discussions on church growth, faith, geographical location, nothing has been mentioned about prayer or anything to do with the Holy Spirit and his guidance. So I'm thinking we're talking about church here, so why... I don't know, it's probably a British way of dealing with stuff, but I, I find it, I'm sorry, but I find it very strange that I'm not hearing these key things that should be part of this discussion. Thanks. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'll, take, I'll take one more. A gentleman in the check shirt and trousers just halfway down the right-hand side of the aisle. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I mean, we've heard an awful lot about... Um, how the parishes really can't do everything that the parish wants to do. And I just wonder, um, nobody's mentioned deanery, presumably because that's the, 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 thing, the whole thing of this evening is about parish. But if you use your deaneries and work with your deaneries, deaneries are places where everything or lots of different things can happen and there is more unity um, if, if everybody is prepared to work together. Thank you very much. I'm just going to invite panellists to signal if they'd like to come in on all of those. And if any of the witnesses feel that they want to, then they signal, I'll bring them in as well. Who would like to kick off? We have the suggestion of six... No, Nick, go. So I'll, just, um, I'll just quickly respond to the first um, question. I think that's exactly the kind of uh, model you might want to explore. Um, one thing I would uh, emphasise is that models like that have to be as you intimated in your question agreed upon by the local community and that won't be the same model for you know, uh, a group of parishes possibly only 30 or 40 miles away I think it's very important that these arrangements of parishes coming together and pooling resources and congregations and, and whatever else um, I think is the way forward because it, 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 it's relational, it maintains some local integrity but it's realistic given the local circumstances, but that will be very different from one location to another, and the critical thing is getting buy-in from people. Um, if it's ever felt it's imposed on them, it's going to fail. The other, I suppose, um, just small footnote, is that I remember one or two examples of that nature that I heard when writing my parish book um, 15 or so years ago, and um, the, um, oh, I'm good, I lost my train of thought. Um, the, the, uh, the, the feedback that came to me was that um, if it wasn't, yeah, if it wasn't locally, if it wasn't locally owned and, and appropriated, um, and if people didn't feel that um, it was um, their uh, uh, their area, 
and particularly, this is a specific point, that if there was rotation from one church to another, it seemed like, in the first instance, a very fair and equitable solution, but over a longer period of time, numbers actually slowly declined. Mm-hmm. Well, someone's responded to that, but also a question was given to me in writing and a similar theme. What does the panel think, for example, of the missional areas in the church in Wales or the ecumenical partnership areas in Cumbria? Are these ways of redefining locality in positive ways? Or are they driven by financial constraints rather than mission priorities? Jessica. Um, I'll respond to the gentleman's question first of all, just to say that um, uh, that there's a saying I won't attribute that a colleague of mine uh, made, which is, fairness will kill us. Um, And if you move, I know this uh, from bitter experience, if you move from church to church, Sunday by Sunday, it's absolutely fine for the people who know where you're going to be. It's just like a rural bus service. As long as you understand it and you can decipher it, it'll be completely fine. In practice, it means nobody new knows where you are. You, cannot, you, you can't say to them, on the fifth Sunday, we'll be in Little Piddlington. You know, they're just not going to remember that. So actually, when you have communities that are working together, they've got to make decisions that are more radical than what will be fair. They've got to say, what's most central? What is best equipped? Where are people most likely to feel comfortable? What are we prepared to give up? Are we prepared to change who we are in order to make space for the people who we would really like to be part of our community who aren't here yet. And those are things that people find very, very difficult to do. As far as things like uh, the, 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 the missional communities goes, <laughs> of course there is a financial constraint that drives these things. But I would like to believe that we do listen to what the Holy Spirit tells us from time to time. <laughs> Thank you very much. Paula, you want to comment on prayer or deaneries? Or um, well, I want, I want to comment on finance and mission, mm. but first I want to comment on prayer because I'm noticing that we're ignoring it beautifully. <laughs> um, so let us um, talk about that. Um, I would like to think we hadn't talked about it because we were assuming it, but I think you put your finger on something which is really very important, is that within the Church of England we do assume and don't talk about. And therefore, your challenge, I think, is very well said and should be very well heard, which is that we need to be more confident about talking about prayer and the, the movement of the Holy Spirit in our conversations about parish and fresh expressions and church planting. And only when we're confident about that will we begin to see something like change. So I think it was a great question worth saying early on. That lovely opposite between finance and mission, um, I think what I would want to say in response is that if you go back to the very, very earliest times, um, first Christians, actually some of the big missional opportunities were financially driven. Um, we, there is something about human nature that needs a crisis um, to give us a kick up the backside. Um, and there's nothing like a financial crisis to give us a missional kick up the backside. So my view is that finance can be a beautiful mission opportunity, but only if we make it a missional opportunity and not financial constraint. So I think we should welcome financial constraints 
I speak this from a diocese which faces <laughs> financial constraints, but find the language and the vision and the excitement to make it a missional opportunity and not just a financial constraint. Thank you very much. Bishop Graham, and then we'll go back out. If I can just comment on the, the deanery point that I think someone was making. Um, uh, I guess it's becoming a bishop. Um, I'm uh, getting quite, quite keen on deaneries, actually. <laughs> Surprisingly find myself in that way. Um, partly because I think, I mean, the, um, the Church of England is this very odd kind of coalition between the, the kind of Protestant and Catholic bits that got left behind after the Reformation in England that decided it's better to be together than apart as they were on the continent. And so we try to live together uh, since then, sometimes with success, sometimes not with success. And deaneries are, are a way of actually making that work. Some deaneries work well, some deaneries don't work well. But when they work really well, uh, it seems to me that they, they actually combine the strengths and you sense that, that the, the whole is greater than the, the sum of the parts. And you can do this thing that I was talking about earlier on of, of coordinating what you do as churches. Not every parish church has to look exactly the same. Uh, different parish churches, churches can do different things. And especially when that's widened out to a sort of churches together kind, kind of movement where you draw in other denominations as well, you can get something really quite rich happening uh, in a locality. Uh, because again, one of the one of the drawbacks of parish can be you can just think of your own parish. And uh, I've often noticed how clergy can get very, you know, parochial in that sense of just being concerned with their own little patch of land and not actually looking beyond it. And there's something about the deanery when you actually meet together in a slightly bigger uh, unit that makes you look a little bit beyond that. And, and I've often noticed when people become area deans, they suddenly, oh yeah, there's a different world out there. We actually have to work together in this. It's not just about my parish. And so actually they're really helpful things. So thank you for that little talk up for deaneries. Thank you very much. Right, some more questions. Uh, one in the middle here. In fact, I'll take these two here and then one here. And I'll go to one at the other side. So blue check shirt. Do you want to put your hand up again, please? Or, yeah, thank you. Thanks, Maeve. Uh, I've just finished nine years as a Durham vicar, including a cluster of pit villages. Uh, when I went there, I said to them, I asked them the Tesco's question. I said, why don't we close our churches and just have a big car park uh, and a nice new church that we could all go to? Nine years later, I'm convinced that we need to keep our visible presences in these villages, um, partly because if we don't do the funerals properly in these pit villages we can put any number of fresh expressions in there and they're not going to work. One of the realities for us in Durham, Durham's changing a lot as a county, is that we have some thriving churches in Durham City. Uh, and I know people from our villages bypass our parish churches to go to churches of a particular type in the city centre. Uh, my question is, how do we re-envision some of our lay people, particularly our keener, younger lay people, to get stuck into local churches which may not have a worship group, but which have much more impact on their community than if they drop in to do occasional ministry from a city centre church. Thank you. And one just along from you. I'd like to have an enormous conversation with David about the choral tradition as an opportunity for mission. Uh, not least because he employed my son as an organ scholar once. <laughs> um, I was wondering how long it would take for someone to pick up on that comment. <laughs> but uh, the question I have is actually following on from Alan about funerals and weddings mm. and things like that. Uh, given that um, 
you, you quoted the statistic about 2% of, of, of the population kind of coming to, to Sunday worship. But there are various dioceses who have done uh, uh, surveys of people who have had some contact with their church. And that's, uh, and that's something like 80% or more in a year because of something like an occasional office. Does the panel have any reflections on uh, the kind of the Church of England's losing um, uh, its grip on that marketplace because other people do it better? Ooh, now we are again challenging. Thank you very much. Um, right, I'll take two from the other side now, actually. Um, one right at the back um, there, and I'll take one in a purple shirt and glasses. I've been a vicar for three weeks now. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, one of the benefits, I think, of the parish system particularly is that it allows a, a particular type of rhythm and regularity uh, to services, which allows an integration of the spiritual life. So I, I reinstated the daily offices and, and daily mass particularly in, in my new parish. Uh, and which people are coming to in small numbers to start with. My question is really about um, the vacancy process and interregnum process and whether that is actually uh, strangling and um, these parishes that rely on that regular routine. Thank you very much. I'll take um, a gentleman in, in a purple shirt and, and then I'll come back to the panel. If any women would like to ask questions, do, do, um, do have a think and encourage you. Um, we have this wonderful diversity in the Church of England, which, of course, we, we celebrate with generous orthodoxy, to quote Bishop Graham. Um, and in most cases, we see just one part, a very small part of this um, broad tradition in each parish, and often very similar types in each deanery. Um, and that's great for those who, who are inclined towards that particular tradition, but can force people who don't connect with the tradition in their parish to go quite far afield to city centre churches, someone said a minute ago, and various other things. And I just wondered, do you see this as a problem with or a challenge to the parish system? And if so, what's the solution? Thank you very much. Well, panel, that's very interesting. So how do you, do you want to deal with these two sides? I mean, both the idea that, um, that people are having to go far away in order to get to a tradition they want, or the, the other way of seeing that people are walking past their local churches to do that. Calvin. I'd very much like to respond, first of all, to the uh, gentleman speaking about the occasional office. For those of you who are not Anglicans in the room, <laughs> it's the opportunity to engage with people for funerals, weddings, that kind of thing. I think that's a really significant missional opportunity. And it's one of the things that the Church of England can do better than anybody else, uh, simply because you have the reach, uh, but also uh, you've got all sorts of reasons for people to come to that particular place uh, to engage with the wedding or the funeral, uh, etc. You are, in many cases, the default choice. And so there's, there's both an opportunity and a responsibility that comes with that. Uh, in my previous experience, I was when I was in local church ministry, I happened to be minister of a very beautiful chapel. And there were all sorts of people who wanted to get married there, not because they were Methodists, but because they knew that the wedding pictures would look fantastic. And they all did. Even I looked great in them. <laughs> but it took me about a year to realize what a huge opportunity that was for these young couples who wanted to come to get married, would happily come to a wedding prep session, would come back to have their children christened, or in some cases have their children christened first and then come back for the wedding. But it was just a real opportunity to engage with folk and a chance to say, here is why this Christian faith matters and why it matters to you in this particular moment. And a conversation about a wedding 
or indeed a funeral, which offers even more missional opportunity, uh, simply begins a conversation and, and, and opens up a door for us. So for me, that's, that's one of the significant strengths of the parish, uh, that, that invitation to engage with folk uh, in the moments when they need the church most. Uh, and here are people coming to the church by choice. No one's yeah. making them come, but they are choosing to come and asking the church for something. And that's a real opportunity that we need to grab with both hands, I think. Thank you. Um, I want to pick up the first question um, about um, the church being a visible presence in pit villages um, and say two things about it. First, that that comment uh, goes quite deeply for me in that when I was researching the book on parishes, I interviewed various um, vicars from, from across the country. And one of them said to me, in fact, more than one of them said to me, in the nicest possible way, you're so very suburban. Um, and what they meant by that was that you come from a place where place is less significant. If you were to live here, um, that the church is is the community actually it's very much often the only public building people are fiercely attached to it don't imagine that you're just going to dismantle it and 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 move the show three miles down the road to the nearest large town because it would be seen as an immense betrayal effectively because the post office is left the pub's gone the bank's gone and you guys are the only people around and that went home and i and i and i, and I recognize that and that more than anything else kind of is uh uh a barrier to, to, to my idea of Minster Church. Second point in response to your question about how do you engage younger people, younger lay people in the local community rather than sending, rather than allowing them to walk, you know, to, to drive 10 miles to the nearest town. My, my response to that will seem uh, facetious and impossible, but I, in one sense I profoundly believe in it. It's open a cafe in the church. Now, of course, logistically I know that's going to be enormously difficult, but I think uh, I, I did a project for ACT, which is a ecumenical body in Scotland 10, 15 years ago, and involved interviewing people across Scotland um, and churches and so on and so forth. And what really came home so powerfully was that those churches that had a liminal space, a space that was, as it were, in the church but not of the church, where people didn't feel that they were having to cross the threshold to a service where people knew what they were doing, but could come there and just chill out and relax, and particularly over food. There is something profoundly spiritual, you'll be surprised to hear, happens when we eat and, and, and drink tea and share biscuits together. And that is a way of bringing people in. And, and, and also, you know, if local amenities have drained out of um, villages like that, actually having uh, an amenity like that is a service to the village. And one final point, is that that is in some ways a reversion to the medieval model that we left behind, whereby the, 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 the priest was in charge of the chancel and the villagers were in charge of the nave. And, you know, it was used for all kinds of village fairs and beer fairs and, and, and you name it. It was, in, in some regards, almost the local pub, but it was a community centre. And so all the logistics... Notwithstanding, I think having some public amenity in which people could share food and drink together and, and, and can draw and, and energise a local community would be a real step forward. Thank you. I wonder if I could persuade anyone to pick up um, the two outstanding points. One, I think, about the rhythm of daily prayer and the impact um, on that on the parish of, of the vacancy, where vacancies are treated. And the other is just this question about you know, I mean, you know, local versus tradition. 
Um, who, who can I look at? Oh, Bishop, would you like to say something? The <laughs> <laughs> feeling that was coming my way, that one. Um, yeah, in, in, interregna, we have this sort of system which everyone else thinks is really weird in the Church of England, that whenever there's a, a vacancy, we have this sort of gap in between, whether it's a gap of a bishop or a, or a, a, um, a, a parish priest. And I suppose in, in most other businesses, you know, CEO leaves, you appoint a new one the next day, and you, you carry on that way. Um, I think there can be some, I think there can be some real values in, in, in Terregna, not least because the memory of the last vicar can just fade a little bit, <laughs> makes it slightly easier for the new person coming in if that memory is not so immediate um, that's there. I think the other thing it does is in some ways it, it allows the church to breathe a little bit sometimes, and in a, particularly for lay ministries to kind of emerge in a way that sometimes they don't when you just have a continuous um, uh, priestly presence. I I'm aware of the problem of, of that regular, ongoing, kind of you know, daily office type uh, ministry in, 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 uh, in parishes that, that can be interrupted by, um, by that. It's not impossible to do that within, you know, with, with, with lay people. But I, I tend to think, and, and there are you know, some statistics to suggest actually sometimes churches thrive more in interregna than they do in the Vicar turns up, which is a slightly worrying <laughs> statistic. Um, I don't think that's always the case, but there are examples of that happening. Um, uh, but I think it's, it's just, it, in some ways, it's, it's, a, it's a time which it actually says to the church, well, actually, this is not just about the priest. This is actually about lay people, and it's about lay ministries coming to the fore. And so I think that's what I'd, I'd want to say about that. I mean, just if I can comment a little bit on the other question uh, as well about, you know, local different traditions and so on. Um, as you say, I think, you know, we have these you know, enormous variety of traditions in the Church of England, and certainly as a bishop, you go to, I go to a different church every week, and uh, sometimes, you know, you're on, you know, one week, you're in one church next week, and, you're, and you wonder whether you are in the same church after all, because they're so, so different. Um, and uh, I think that's perhaps less of a problem in, a, in, in an urban context, because as you say, you know, if you, if you, if, if the style of your local church is not really what you, what you, you like if you don't like choral music or organ music, you can probably go down the road and find something that's a little bit more familiar to yourself. I think it's becomes more of an issue in sort of smaller towns or, or, or country parishes where the parish church is the parish church; it's the only one that's available, and, and you, know, you can't just go to the next door parish. And that's where I, th I sometimes wonder whether our clergy need to be a little bit more kind of you know bilingual liturgically, uh, being able to operate in a number of different styles rather than just one. Uh, the more you know, the parish church really is the parish church is the only option available um, and for, for people in that area. Uh, the more flexible we have to train our clergy to be uh, so they're comfortable uh, inhabiting different styles of worship um, so they can do the family informal sort of service and they can do the formal um, you know, Book of Common Prayer or, or, um, or uh, whatever it might be. So, you know, it just seems to me there's a little bit of a difference there in the, in the context um, as to what's needed. Thank you. I want to take two very quick final questions. If you've got a burning question, put your hand up, and I'll, I'll, t I'll take um, two. Um, okay, the gentleman here and, and the one behind him. Yeah, thank you. Yes, the gentleman in the, um, the blue jumper. We've been very, very, we've been very, very uh, ecclesiastically focused, and I would like to put in a word for church schools as a great resource both for locality and for mission and for education and for family contacts, a real asset that the Church of England neglects at its peril. They have so many opportunities and so many good things to share with the community, an incarnational presence of our church in the community. Thank you very much. 
and the gentleman behind you, I think, was, yes, and then we'll, with regret, have to call it a day. I was very interested in what Andrew Rumsey was saying about the Minster idea, the Minster model, mm. um, because in rural parishes, like the one I'm in, very often we could do with the extra resources or maybe coming together in a bigger central church every now and again, and we could um, share resources in a much greater way. So I'd love oh. to have some thoughts on that. Thank you very much. I might take one or two comments. Paula, would you like to ask Catherine? I'd simply like to say an amen to the first speaker. As a former school chaplain, I think the work that we do in church schools of various types is immense, uh, not just among Christians, but a number of religious communities choose faith schools, even if it is not their faith tradition, uh, because of a set of values that they can buy into. So you are right. It's a really significant uh, area of ministry for us. Can I add a little extra on the church schools? Um, my husband, who's here tonight, is a parish priest, and um, he does a regular um, assembly in the local um, primary schools. And, um, and just a little window into the impact that um, that work has is that um, he has inherited from one of his um, previous um, incumbents a suitcase. And at every assembly, he goes with a suitcase with something in the suitcase. And... Um, He's, Peter is now having wedding couples who come and talk to him about getting married. And um, halfway through the conversation, he'll see their attention go, um, and it's to the suitcase. <laughs> and it turns out that they have been at the church school, and it is the simple mechanism of um, a little suitcase that he takes in every week um, and has been taken into the church school for years and years and years that actually has tied people to the parish. And therefore, you know, it's a lovely little, I think it's a nice little anecdote that supports exactly what you're saying. It's that week in, week out, there are people going into church schools and making an enormous difference. And we shouldn't in any way underestimate that. Thank you. I think the other thing about church schools is that when you get a really good partnership between a parish and a church school, it can be immensely powerful for both. I can think of a number of examples in my area where Actually, the, the fact that you've got a church and a church school means that both of them are better off. I can think of a church which um, you know, has a church school next door to it. And actually, the church school is the, is the ideal way to reach into the local community and to have the impact and to, to be able to, um, to encounter all kinds of families that wouldn't not normally darken the door of a church. Also, the church school, having the church next door, gives a whole ready stream of volunteers and people who can come in and do help with, the, with the, uh, the, the, um, the, the school in an area where that's really quite hard to get to happen. And you kind of feel both are better off because of the partnership. Any final words? Thank you very much indeed. Um, we, we've just heard so much tonight that's so rich, and, and certainly this conversation could continue, and I hope it will. Um, I mean, I certainly, just to add a few words from my perspective, I think what we've heard tonight showcase the very best of the church in all its forms and all its manifestations. And one of the things we need to take away from this is that there is joy and passion for the gospel and passion for communities in every part of the church, both within the Church of England and in the Methodist Church and beyond and in different wings of the Church of England. And one of the lessons we have to do, I think, is to take away from this, is to look at how can we learn the best from each other, from other manifestations, and to take on, to have the humility to learn from others, as well as the willingness to share what we do well with others. In the last couple of weeks alone, I mean, I've seen evangelical churches reaching out and doing wonderful things in very poor communities. I've sat in, in, a, in a, an Anglo-Catholic church with, where volunteers sat and just kept the church open and some days nobody would come in and then one day I sat there and a man came in and he ate tea, biscuits and drank tea and he cried 
And he kept looking at the altar, and eventually came out that he'd buried his wife a month ago, and they got married there. And he came there, and the church was the place that he came back to, to bring the thing he didn't know what else to do with, both because they were there, but also because what it does so often is to hold the heart of the community. And that, in however, whatever form it takes, is something that's our sacred duty in the church, and, and long may it carry on by the grace of God and with a great deal of prayer. Um, just a final few practical things, just say thank you so much. Um, I, I, we're very grateful to the Church Times for starting this debate, for the wonderful double-page spread, for asking the questions, for getting us thinking about it, and of course for sponsoring this evening. Um, to SCM Press for all the organisation, and to David Shervington, the unsung hero at the back, who's done all the work, rounded us all up, briefed us, and made sure we all turned up, and, and, and been very modestly keeping out of the limelight as he did it. Thank you very much to that. Thank you to St. Melitus, um, who's president um, in, in Bishop Graham is here, and also I can see his assistant dean in, in Jane Williams is here as well. Thank you for the hospitality. Um, and thank you to our, our wonderful, wonderful witnesses, to, to Andrew, to Andy, to Alison, and to David, for coming and sharing your wisdom, and coming, in some cases, a long way, but sharing so much. And thank you to the panel for your, really for your thoughtfulness, your honesty, your wisdom, your wit, and your general energy. I think the church is in good hands, and long may it remain. Thank you all very much. That's it for this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find lots more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, www.churchtimes.co.uk. If you're not yet a subscriber, why not take a look at our latest introductory offer, one month of our digital package and five issues of the paper for just £5. Go to www.churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. The music, as always, was by Sort After Sounds. Don't forget to tune in next Friday for our next episode, and thanks for listening.